A healthy 13-month-old boy was found with a pill in their mouth. The pill was taken out and the child was fed and put to sleep. There was no attempt to seek medical advice or contact a poison center after the child was found with the pill. The following morning, about eight hours later, the child was found unresponsive in their crib. Emergency medical services were contacted and on arrival, the child was not breathing and had no pulse. Resuscitation with epinephrine and chest compressions was started, but tragically, they were not successful. They were pronounced dead on arrival to the nearest emergency department. What could cause such a tragic case from just having a pill in their mouth? If you want answers, keep listening. This is The Poison Lab. Poison Lab, a show about poisonings from people who treat poisonings. I'm your host, clinical toxicologist and emergency medicine pharmacist Ryan, and with me as always, my lovely co-host Toxo. Hello everyone, welcome to Toxo and Ryan in the morning. Hey, are, are you trying to change the show name? Wait, why is your name first? I am just toying with some ideas. This is supposed to be a partnership, Toxo. You can't just run off with the show and start making your own decisions. Oh please, we both know I could break out and go solo anytime I want. The fans know where the real talent is. <sighs> Sometimes the truest statements hurt the most, Toxo. We'll talk about this more offline. Anyways, let's put our creative differences aside here. We have to get on with the case. So we have a kid who was found with a tablet of who knows what in their mouth. They were put to bed and eight hours later, we found them unresponsive. So whatever it was, we think it might have gotten absorbed just from their mouth and it caused them to stop breathing and go into cardiac arrest. We don't know exactly when because we found them eight hours later, so anything could have happened in between. So we asked people to write in what they thought this poison could be, and really there's quite a few based off the limited information that we have. See, we have this term in toxicology called the one pill can kill list. That means they're drugs or poisons that just a single tablet is enough to cause fatality in kids. This list is composed of pretty much any opioid medication. And then we also have things like blood pressure medicines like beta blockers or calcium channel blockers. Some examples might be propranolol or diltiazem. And then we have some diabetes medicines too. Sulfonylureas are these nasty drugs that can cause really delayed hypoglycemia or low blood sugar. An example of that is like glipizide. So there's quite a few different agents that can cause problems. So let's see what the listeners think might have been the cause of this case. Activating email reading protocols. Transmissions from the poison verse. Our first email comes from listener Michael Wright. He says, assuming they actually swallowed more than one. Now let me stop right there. That's actually a great thought. Anytime where I'm dealing with a kiddo that might have swallowed a medicine of any kind, medicines don't usually live on their own. They live in large herds of medicine called medicine bottles. Point being, you can never assume they just got into a single dose. You usually have to do some hunting around to ensure that they didn't get into, say, an entire bottle, and you just found them with the single tablet that's left. Uh, But Michael Wright goes on to say, well, it could be any sulfonylurea or glitinide anti-diabetic. Good catch there, Mike. Sulfonylureas are absolutely on the one-pill-can-kill list, known for causing hypoglycemia and then seizures from low blood sugar. Uh, For those who don't know what a sulfonylurea is, essentially, it super-sensitizes the pancreas to releasing insulin in response to sugar. Uh, So normally, if you eat a little bit of sugar, you'll release some insulin. But if you're on a sulfonylurea, you'll release, say, I don't know, 10 times as much insulin. But usually you need a stimulus for that insulin to get released. So you might get exposed to a sulfonylurea and be asymptomatic, but then eat some sugar uh, and then have a delayed hypoglycemia because you over-secrete insulin. He goes on to write, it could also be any opioid, benzo, or hypnotic. Also, great points, Mike. So opioids, these are definitely on the one pill can kill list. They can knock out the respiratory center in our brain and make us stop breathing. Um, Other sedative hypnotics like benzodiazepines, barbiturates can all cause respiratory depression. 
Now, we worry most about probably the barbiturates and the opioids, but benzodiazepines, especially in combination with other sedating drugs, can totally knock out our respiratory centers as well. Mike goes on to guess that maybe it's tricyclic antidepressants. He thinks maybe there's some cardiotoxicity, but he states, I have low confidence in this. That's a great thought too, Mike. Maybe the child had a TCA, or tricyclic antidepressant, induced cardiac arrhythmia in the middle of the night, went into cardiac arrest, and then we found them in the morning. Um, and for those that don't know, tricyclic antidepressants are probably the most lethal antidepressants. And for that reason, we don't usually use them as antidepressants anymore. Generally, they're prescribed now for migraine prophylaxis, certain pain conditions, and even kids might be on them for nocturnal enuresis or bedwetting. And at standard doses, they're generally well tolerated, but I really get worried in large overdoses or in a kid that gets into a high-strength tablet. These could definitely be on the one-pill-can-kill list. In overdose, they really block a lot of important receptors and channels, like sodium channels, muscarinic receptors, and alpha-adrenergic receptors in your vasculature, so they show up with seizures, arrhythmias, low blood pressure, and high heart rate. All things that can be pretty lethal very fast. Okay, and then Michael writes, last guess is potentially an antihypertensive like hydralazine or a long-acting nitrate. And these are all great guesses because all of these are really pretty much one-pill-can-kill type medicines, things that cause... Uh, severe hypoglycemia, lower our uh, mental status to the point where we stop breathing, could cause cardiac arrhythmias, or can make our blood pressure so low that we stop perfusing our brain. Uh, so Mike says, thanks. This is fun. Sincerely, Michael J. Wright, uh, a pharmacy student at Concordia School of Pharmacy, PharmD candidate 2022. Hey, Mike, thanks for writing in. These were all excellent guesses. I can tell you have some great toxicology training over there at Concordia. Um, our next email is going to come in from... Brian, why do you get to read all the emails? Oh, well, yeah, I guess you can read them if you want to, Toxo. Do you want to read the next one? This email comes from listener Brian Rose. It's just a picture of Donald Trump and a bottle of hydroxychloroquine. Wow, very topical and insightful. Thanks, Brian. Uh, with all the coronavirus going on and people being concerned about prevention, a lot of focus has come on to the antimalarials hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine. Many people are probably familiar with the national news case where somebody took chloroquine sulfate reportedly to try to prevent coronavirus, and they did, unfortunately, pass away. Uh, and depending on where you look, antimalarials have been on some people's one-pill-can-kill list. Chloroquine and quinine are certainly capable of causing arrhythmias, seizures, and electrolyte abnormalities. So, Depending on how much the kid actually got into, hydroxychloroquine might be a reasonable guess, as it certainly has fatal potential. Not a bad guess, Brian. Let's see what some other listeners think. Here's one from ER physician Tom Growey. He says, clonidine? Maybe colchicine? There are many possibilities. Is the idea that the patient sucked on the pill or maybe swallowed one and had another in his or her hand? Uh, great question, Tom. So this brings up again, just because you find one tablet in a child's mouth uh, doesn't mean there aren't others that they may have swallowed. So Dr. Growey's guesses here were clonidine or colchicine. Now clonidine, that's a blood pressure medicine, but it's kind of a special one. It's called an alpha-2 agonist. Most blood pressure medicines will lower your blood pressure by directly widening your veins or slowing down your heart rate. But clonidine actually just tells your brain to stop sending signals that increase your blood pressure. It does this by stimulating a receptor called alpha-2. So it does this by stimulating a receptor in the brain called alpha-2, which turns down our fight-or-flight or sympathetic outflow. And it's really good at this. It's so good that it has a cousin drug called guanfacine, which is used for attention deficit hyperactivity disorder in kiddos, slowing down all that excess sympathetic activity in the brain. Now, guanfacine, also on the one pill can kill us, acts just like clonidine, but is prescribed to kids, and it causes a lot of headaches for me. I can't tell you how many calls I've gotten, because nine-year-old Timmy is on guanfacine and winds up getting way more than his normal dose. See, let's say Timmy decides he's going to be a big boy today and takes his own dose of medicine at 5 o'clock, doesn't tell his parents. Mom gets home from work and makes sure she gives Timmy his nightly dose of guanfacine. Now he's got double the dose. And sometimes dad comes home from work and does the same thing. And now I've got a kid with three times as much of a potentially lethal antihypertensive in their system. This is why we need to use pill counters, people. 
Or an even tougher scenario, when mom is trying to treat two-year-old Billy's fever with ibuprofen and accidentally grabs nine-year-old Timmy's guanfacine. And now I got a sick kid who just took a blood pressure medicine and I have to figure out what to do with them. Needless to say, we deal with a lot of these alpha-2 agonist exposures at poison centers. And they're actually pretty fascinating in terms of their toxic presentation. Not only are they blood pressure medicines that actually target the brain and not your blood vessels, but their initial effects can actually mimic opioids. Uh, we'll talk more about opioid toxidromes later in the show, but they can cause little pupils, make you sleepy, and make you stop breathing. And just like opioids, uh, you can use naloxone to treat these overdoses, um, which is interesting, probably because the alpha-2 receptor where these drugs work is co-localized near opioid receptors on the brain. And they probably share second messenger pathways. Anyways, one more interesting caveat about these poisonings is that even though it's a blood pressure lowering agent, sometimes they show up with high blood pressure at first. So it works by stimulating alpha-2 in the brain. But when you overdose on a drug, you lose receptor selectivity, and it stimulates whatever alpha receptors it wants, including the alpha-1 receptors in your blood vessels. So when you stimulate those, it clamps down your blood vessels. It makes your blood vessels squeeze, and that increases your blood pressure. So an early clonidine or alpha-2 agonist overdose might show up hypertensive and then progress into low blood pressure which is confusing for clinicians who aren't familiar with this drug. Okay, I think we covered clonidine there. Great guess, interesting drug, good sublingual absorption, and it can knock out our blood pressure, so could certainly be on the one pill can kill list. What about the other drug that the listener guessed, which was colchicine? Colchicine is actually a naturally occurring medicine and toxin that you can find in the plant, the autumn crocus. And we use it medicinally for gout as an anti-inflammatory or in certain cardiac conditions like myocarditis. This is one of the drugs where when I hear about an exposure, I get nervous. I don't know if maybe a lick or a taste would be an issue, but man, it does not take a lot to cause a sick kid or a sick intentional overdose. And every year I read some tragic fatality reports about intentional overdoses with this drug that, man, they are hard to treat. The drug works as an anti-mitotic. If you reach way back to high school chemistry, you'll remember the mitotic spindle is what we use to pull our chromosomes apart when the cell is dividing. So it actually blocks your cells from dividing. And if you weren't aware of this, you need your cells to continually divide in order to continue living. Since pretty much every cell in our body needs to divide, it globally affects all of our cells. It's not limited to just one system, like your heart or lungs or brain. Someone with a bad ingestion of these might wind up on full life support, like ECMO machines, which are what we use to bypass your heart for pumping and oxygenating blood, or uh, ventilators to breathe for you. And even then, who knows how well you're going to do since all your cells are poisoned. Because the toxin works on cell division, you usually see symptoms manifest where cells are dividing the fastest, like your gastrointestinal system. Your stomach is exposed to a lot of acid, so you frequently make new epithelial cells. Or your skin, which is constantly creating new skin cells to replace old dead ones. Or your bone marrow, which is always making new red and white blood cells. So initial symptoms of colchicine toxicity usually develop with GI, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, progressing to affecting the skin with alopecia or hair loss, which eventually develops, as well as the bone marrow, and we see bone marrow suppression, so you have low cell lines. And moving on to more fulminant organ system dysfunction, it can affect the lungs, the heart, you can have acute respiratory distress syndrome. Uh, it's really just a difficult toxin to treat. But I'm thinking in this case, because the kid kind of rapidly just became sick uh, and lost their airway at some point and lost a pulse at some point, it seems less likely it would be colchicine just because they didn't have any initial symptoms of GI distress or the progression into their severe disease that you would usually see with colchicine toxicity. Who's next, Toxo? This email comes from emergency medicine pharmacist Jeffrey Yoakum. I'm guessing the pill in question is suboxin or straight buprenorphine due to the sublingual absorption, respiratory depression, and opiates being on the one pill can kill list. I'll also assume the strength of the tablet is 8 mg versus the 2 mg. Thanks for the podcast. Thanks for listening, Jeff, and really great response. Picked up on some very interesting things. Sublingual absorption. Remember, this kid was found with a tablet in their mouth and had it taken out. Assuming they didn't swallow another one, all the drug that they absorbed was sublingual. But 
Some drugs are actually meant to be absorbed sublingually, including suboxone sublingual films. For those unfamiliar, suboxone is buprenorphine, which is a relatively potent opioid we'll talk about later. We also picked up on the one pill can kill list and the likelihood that this was probably a higher potency drug in order to absorb a larger amount from a sublingual dose. Here's another email from listener Matthew Stanton, who I happen to know is also a toxicologist and an emergency medicine pharmacist. He says, Hi Toxo, great case. Every time I hear of these cases, my thoughts go to the one pill can kill category. My answer to episode three is any opioid, propranolol, diltiazem, or verapamil. Now for the listeners, propranolol, verapamil, diltiazem are effective drugs for a variety of conditions. They're usually used as anti-hypertensive or blood pressure lowering agents, and they're great at that. They're so great that in overdose, they're really good at killing people. So I get real nervous when I have a bad overdose of one of these, like an adult who took a whole bottle of them, or a kid that swallowed just one pill. Matt goes on to say, a child could have had respiratory depression from an opioid which caused cardiac arrest or cardiovascular collapse from a beta blocker or calcium channel blocker. An argument could be made for a high-dose bupropion tablet like Eplenzin. 522 milligrams, and it was status epilepticus as the cause. All right, listeners, so bupropion, that's a whole other story. I can't even get into it. Basically, it's a prescription bath salt. And no, not bath salts like for your bath. Bath salts like the drugs that make people eat their neighbor's faces. Uh, it's a synthetic version of a cathinone, which is a compound found in the cot plant, uh, which is native to Africa. Uh, and people chew it to get a little energy burst, but at one point people figured out how to illicitly manufacture it. It's a stimulant. They made super potent versions, and it caused people to go crazy when they took it. So bupropion, which is a prescription version of a cathinone, um, is stimulating. It's actually an antidepressant, but when it's abused or if it's taken an overdose, uh, it can cause seizures and arrhythmias and all sorts of nasty things. So Matt, in this email, is bringing up some great points that it's really hard to know what was the actual cause. All we know is we found an unresponsive child in cardiac arrest, but there's many different ways you can get to that road. He goes on to say, if there was no interval history other than the child went to bed and then was checked on eight hours later, it could have been death at any point during that time. And finally, he says, or maybe it was just a vitamin and the death was due to poor sleeping conditions or other causes. Well... Matt, thank you for bringing up all those wonderful points that go into the assessment of tox fatalities. We only see a patient at a point estimate. We don't always have the full graph of all the different things that happened before that point estimate. Okay, Toxo, let's wrap it up. How about one more email? This email comes from listener Karina Rudenberg. Is it suboxone or subutex? One taste or lick can have precipitous ENS and respiratory depression in kiddos, and as a result usually requires 24 hours hospital ops. Yet another guess for Suboxone or Subutex, which are two different formulations of the drug buprenorphine, an opioid. And they reference that it can cause precipitous CNS, which means central nervous system, and respiratory system depression from just a lick or a taste. They even throw in an observation time that you should watch a kiddo after they've been exposed. So I'll assume that they work in healthcare or maybe they're even a poison specialist of some kind. They're stating that anyone who even has a lick or a taste of this medicine, Suboxone or Subutex, should be observed for 24 hours for symptom development. And I have seen that referenced in a few papers. I know one by uh, a toxicologist at UMass named Ed Boyer. Um, another one in a pediatric fatality report mentions that because symptoms from exposure to the buprenorphine part of this drug, the active opioid, can be delayed for up to six hours, that longer observation times are needed. Now, the exact observation time that somebody actually gets might differ based off of who's managing the case, but... That's a good point to bring up, and it's actually going to be relevant later in the show. How long does it take to develop symptoms, and how long do you need to watch people after they're exposed? Okay, everyone brought up some fantastic points, and we got to discuss quite a few medicines on the one pill can kill list, and even some that aren't on there. Many of our listeners hit it right on the nose. Today, we're talking about opioids, specifically buprenorphine. 
Now, to reward our listeners for writing in and giving such awesome responses, our winner for this week is Jeffrey Yoakum, an EM pharmacist uh, who brought up some excellent points about the absorption of buprenorphine as a sublingual tablet. He discussed the one-pill-can-kill list and a couple different aspects of the poisoning that led to this conclusion. So thanks, Jeff. Congrats. Thanks for listening. And everyone else, keep writing in, because I love hearing what you think could be the cause of this case, and it brings up great discussion points. Obviously, this was a tragic case. A kid was found with a Suboxone tablet in their mouth. It was taken out, they were put to bed, and many hours later, found deceased. The strength of the tablet that they were found with was never listed, but there was postmortem toxicology done, which confirmed buprenorphine and naloxone in the blood, as well as in the gastric contents. I will put the link to this published case report in the show notes. And as tragic as this case is, it's that much more important to highlight just how toxic some of these compounds can be so we can prevent further pediatric fatality. Now, don't worry, this isn't the only case for the show, because today we're not just dealing with opioids, but we're also tackling maybe the hardest topic in all of toxicology, at least in my opinion, poison center triage, meaning trying to figure out who is going to get sick after somebody puts who knows how much of any given poison into their mouth. You know, if somebody shows up to the emergency department and maybe they took some kind of a poison, I can at least watch them there and figure out if they're getting sick. And I have trained medical staff that can assess their vital signs. We can check labs. We can do things to figure out which direction they're going. When we're getting a phone call from usually a frantic parent whose child just got into some substance that they might not even know what it is, just figuring out the quantity that they ingested and the substance is a feat in itself. After that, trying to determine who will get sick adds a whole other layer of complexity. But poison centers do it, and they do it very well. In fact, in 2018, 1.4 million exposures were managed at home and didn't have to go into a healthcare facility. But clearly, based on this case... There are some exposures that absolutely do need medical care. In fact, that's the whole reason for this episode. I got a consult about a kiddo who just maybe licked a tablet from the one pill can kill list. And I didn't really know what to do with him. I didn't even know if they had ingested the drug. So it was a bit tough to figure out whether they should go to the ER or stay at home. What was the drug called? Oh, see, they were found with a tablet of Suboxone. Subox what now? You know, Suboxone, we just said it like 10 times in this episode, Toxo. It's the combination tablet of buprenorphine, the opioid, and naloxone, an opioid antagonist. Bupro what now? Naloxu? Ryan, you just added two whole words, and neither of them were Suboxone. Oh, okay. Yep, maybe we should define some things here. Suboxone is the brand name of a drug that we use to help people with opioid addiction stop using opioids. Actually, let me stop right here. In this episode, we're going to be talking about a lot of concepts that were covered in the mini-episode between episodes 1 and 2. We're going to be talking about addiction versus dependence, withdrawal, bioavailability, and what we call partial agonist drugs. So it might not be a bad idea for you to take a listen to that episode if you're not already familiar with these terms. Okay. Back to Suboxone. So people who are chronically taking opioids, either for medical reasons or due to addiction, will develop opioid dependence. And once they're physiologically dependent, when you take the drug away, they go into severe withdrawal. Fortunately for opioids, it's not deadly, but it is very uncomfortable. And it's a driving force behind why some people with opioid addiction continue to use. They want to avoid that feeling of quote-unquote dope sickness. Of course, physical dependence is really just the relationship between the drug and the user's biologic system. Addiction is more or less the relationship between the user and the drug, where they've lost control over their ability to use, they have rewired reward pathways, and they're experiencing consequences in their life from use, but can't stop. So, of course, we want to treat the underlying addiction, but before that can happen, we usually need to handle the symptoms of withdrawal, which is just one part of the overall disease. In fact, some addiction specialists have said that detoxing people is easy. Keeping people off drugs is the hard part. But this is where opioid replacement therapy comes into play. Drugs like Suboxone, which contains the opioid buprenorphine, or other opioid drugs like methadone. You can administer medically supervised doses, preventing the user from many of the social dynamics that actually cause the harmful effects of addiction, risky behaviors to obtain their drugs, or unregulated products that can have wide variability in their potency and lead to overdose. 
by giving the user medically supervised routine access to the drug that their body has now been rewired to think that it needs, we can prevent the symptoms of withdrawal, allow them to focus on building the social dynamics of a regular life instead of focusing on obtaining the drug, and start to address the underlying issue, which is the unhealthy relationship between the substance and the user. Historically, opioid replacement therapy has been a little bit controversial, but the data to support that opioid users who are on opioid replacement therapy have much lower rates of mortality than those who are continuing to use opioids from illicit sources is pretty hard to argue. And the best way to ensure an addicted person will never recover is to let them die of an overdose. So Suboxone is one of the drugs we can use as opioid replacement therapy. Here's where it can get confusing. Suboxone is just the brand name. It's actually a drug that contains two active components. Kind of like Tylenol PM contains both Tylenol and Benadryl. Suboxone contains buprenorphine, which is the opioid that we can use to help prevent patients from going into withdrawal and naloxone, which is an opioid antagonist. Now, why would they co-formulate a drug with both an opioid and an opioid reversal agent? Well, it prevents people from using the drug in ways that it's not supposed to be used. Naloxone has almost no oral bioavailability. Only about 3% of the total drug is available to get into the body if you swallow a tablet. But if you inject or snort the drug, the naloxone is present and it blocks the effects of buprenorphine. Okay, so what about the opioid in there? Buprenorphine is somewhere between 25 and 100 times more potent than morphine, which makes it very terrifying when it's in the mouth of a toddler. But it's what we call a partial opioid agonist meaning that when it activates the opioid receptor, it won't be able to turn it all the way on. If you remember back to that mini-episode, it's like if I give 100 milligrams of morphine, I will get 100 times the effect of 1 milligram of morphine, because that's a full agonist. But for this drug, if I give, say, 100 milligrams of buprenorphine, but the ceiling dose is around 16 milligrams, I will only have about the same response as 16 milligrams of buprenorphine. But that doesn't really mean it's not a strong opioid. You don't really need to get anywhere near that ceiling effect to knock out the respiratory centers in a kid's brain and have an unconscious, not-breathing child. Also, some people have even tried to abuse it for euphoria, so that's why we co-formulate it with naloxone so it can't be abused or injected. All these things together make it a really great drug for treatment of opioid use disorder. You have a long-acting, super-potent, partial agonist opioid that, in theory, the more you take, the lot you're not going to get more euphoria from it, and we have it co-formulated with an abuse deterrent to prevent any mischievous use of the drug. However, all of these pros for opioid use disorder make it a bit of a nightmare for trying to figure out if a kid is going to get sick after they get a lick of this drug. We'll touch a little bit more about why later. So why are we focusing on Suboxone today? There's tons of different opioids. Well, one reason is that Suboxone, or at least the active component buprenorphine, seems to be one of the opioids that kids get into quite frequently, more so than others. If we look at data from the annual report of the American Association of Poison Control Centers from 2018, they had approximately 1,100 calls to U.S. poison centers about kiddos who got exposed to Suboxone or buprenorphine. This is what I kind of find weird about this. It was actually the most common pediatric exposure of opioids. Now, that's not incidence data. That's just how many times poison centers heard about it. There's probably way more than that that went undocumented. There's no way we get 100% of the phone calls. But it's a good ballpark number. And numbers are a little bit too abstract, so here's more of a visual for you. There's maybe 250 seats in a movie theater on average. So... Each year, there's at least, I don't know, four movie theaters full of toddlers uh, getting exposed to buprenorphine. Now, poison centers aren't the only places showing high rates of young kids being exposed to buprenorphine. In fact, in a nine-year study of kids going to the hospital because they got into somebody's medication bottle, buprenorphine caused more hospital visits than any other drug, 8% of all of the kids. Then we have this other study from the Poison Center Group in Colorado, who looked throughout the entire nation for all the kiddos who were exposed to opioids over eight years. In total, they saw about 48,000 exposures in that eight-year period, which comes out to about 6,000 per year. So if you want a little bit of a visual image for that, that's roughly two cruise ships full of opioid-gobbling youngsters flying around each year. 
Just hearing that statistic makes me want to run out and buy more naloxone. I already have some, but it makes me want to have more. If you have kids and any opioids laying around at home, I don't even care if it's grandma's old stash, you need to have some naloxone. It's like a 100% effective antidote. There's zero risk to giving it to a kid, and it could literally save their life. I mean, I don't even have kids or opioids at home, but I feel like with 6,000 kids a year, it seems likely I could run into one at any moment. Okay, back to the study. So, the most commonly involved opioid when they looked at kids getting exposed to opioids throughout the entire U.S. was actually hydrocodone. And for a long time, hydrocodone wasn't a Schedule II drug, so if a doctor needed to call in a pain medicine, they could actually call it in over the phone, unlike Schedule II drugs, which you have to write a paper script for, which gave it a huge market share. They loved to write for this drug, so it kind of makes sense that a lot of kids would get exposed to it. But if you look at the rate of exposures per prescription, buprenorphine was actually the winner, with about 1 in every 10,000 prescriptions leading to a kiddo being exposed to an opioid. It's not really clear why the exposure rate is so much higher. Buprenorphine exists on its own as a pain medicine, and then there's also the Suboxone formulations. And it actually comes in a lot of different types, like a sublingual film, a dissolvable tablet, patches. So there might just be more chances for kids to get exposed to it. And it kind of also might look like candy or like maybe one of those Listerine strips when they see uh, the dissolvable film. So maybe that's why but not super clear. We have taken some strides to reduce the exposures throughout the years by making the packaging more resistant to little kiddos' hands. But it's still a pretty significant source of pediatric opioid exposure. So what actually happens when you take an opioid? How does it cause its toxic effect? I mean, unless you've been living under a rock, you've probably heard that opioids are an epidemic in the United States, meaning they are killing people in massive quantities. Brian, I thought opioids were used every day in medicine. How could they be killing so many people? Well, the long and short is that when you overdose on an opioid, you stop breathing and you die. I think most people understand that. I'm going to dive in for just a minute into the nerdy science behind what actually happens when you stop breathing and why opioids cause you to stop breathing and what even makes you want to breathe. If you don't feel like listening to this, you can skip ahead, I don't know, like 10 minutes. The primary reason they're used in medicine is for their effects in reducing pain signaling. You stub your toe, you feel pain. You take an opioid, less of that pain gets to your brain. But they can also blunt some other responses that are very important. If you held your breath right now, in fact, you can even give it a try. Hold your breath until you feel like you need to breathe. Don't hurt yourself. But you'll notice that it doesn't take long until you feel like you need to take a breath. But if I check the oxygen levels in your blood, they really haven't changed. In fact, I do this for my students who are on rotation with me in the emergency department. I put a pulse oximeter on their finger, something that measures how much oxygen is attached to your hemoglobin, which is a correlate for how much oxygen is in our blood available to be distributed to tissue. So I put this pulse ox on them and I ask them to hold their breath. After about 60 seconds holding their breath, pretty much every one of them has their face looking like a blueberry about to pop. Yet, their pulse oximeter still reads about 100%, meaning there's still quite a bit of oxygen in the blood that can bind to your hemoglobin. So their oxygen levels are still high, even though they really feel like they need to breathe. So if it's not our oxygen driving us to take that breath, what is? That would be carbon dioxide. See, as you're holding your breath, you're not exhaling any carbon dioxide. Let's break down why this is actually what stimulates us to breathe, at least initially. See, as the body uses energy, it generates acid, or hydrogen ions. And we don't want a lot of those in our blood because it shuts down our normal machinery. So the hydrogen ions combine with bicarbonate in our blood when hydrogen and bicarb combine, it creates something called carbonic acid, and this then disassociates into water and carbon dioxide. This is the body's buffer equation. Buffer meaning it's buffering the excess acid that's produced from normal metabolic activity. So the more hydrogen you have, the more carbon dioxide you'll produce. It's basically a correlate for the amount of acid in your blood. And carbon dioxide is this small, really slippery, fat-soluble molecule that can slip into the brain really easily. So as acid builds up, more carbon dioxide is produced. More carbon dioxide reaches the brain and reaches the respiratory centers of the brain and tells us, you need to take a breath so that I can exhale all this carbon dioxide. This is called the hypercapnic respiratory drive. 
it's a pretty smart little trick. See, oxygen is vital for energy production, and we don't live very long without it. So we want to keep a pretty good reservoir of circulating oxygen in case we're in a scenario where we're not able to get as much of it as we need, like say you're underwater, or get knocked unconscious and stop breathing. If we only took a breath when we were low on oxygen, we'd quickly deplete our reservoir. Instead, we use a byproduct of oxygen consumption, which is carbon dioxide. And this way, when oxygen demand goes up, like let's say you're running from a bear, well, carbon dioxide production will increase as well. And this will force you to breathe more, taking in more oxygen so we can maintain our reservoir and breathing off carbon dioxide, which helps us neutralize the acids in our blood. There's also hypoxic respiratory drive from too little oxygen in the blood that comes into play later. So opioids turn down that respiratory center in the brain and make it not so responsive to carbon dioxide. So combine this with the fact that opioids also cause sedation. You become sleepy and stop breathing. Normally, as the carbon dioxide builds up, it would signal us to breathe. But because of the opioids, that effect is blunted and you don't take any more breaths. And here's the problem. Part of the way we get rid of hydrogen ions is by exhaling the carbon dioxide that it turned into. If we don't exhale the carbon dioxide, it doesn't leave any room for the new hydrogens to turn into carbon dioxide, and we end up with building up of acid in our blood. This is called a respiratory acidosis. Think about it like a garden. Just stay with me. I think this will make sense. So when we have normal, healthy plants growing and causing life, we get caterpillars that come along with it, sort of how hydrogen ions are produced as part of normal metabolic activity. So caterpillars are our hydrogen ions, and they keep multiplying at a pretty constant rate. But if we let them continually multiply in our garden, they'll eat everything in sight. So in order to maintain this little ecosystem, some of the caterpillars need to turn into butterflies or carbon dioxide, and then they can fly away and go find food elsewhere. And when they fly away, this leaves room for other caterpillars to turn into butterflies, so the system can keep going. And of course, the more caterpillars that we have, the more hydrogen that's produced, the more of them that will turn into butterflies or carbon dioxide. And in fact, if we have so many butterflies that there's actually more butterflies than caterpillars, some of the butterflies will turn back into caterpillars. Obviously, not in real life, but if the butterflies are carbon dioxide, they can turn back into hydrogen if there's too much. This is also called Le Chatelier's Principle, where if you apply stress to a chemical system, it will shift to relieve the stress at equilibrium. Meaning if I add more substrate, like hydrogen or caterpillars, I will generate more product, like carbon dioxide or butterfly. So now let's put a glass dome on this butterfly garden and prevent all that carbon dioxide or butterflies from escaping. Some of the caterpillars begin turning into butterflies and even a few more and a few more, but none of the butterflies are escaping. They begin crowding the skies. There's too much carbon dioxide or butterflies. But this doesn't stop our hydrogen ions or caterpillars from being produced, so they just keep multiplying. But now there's no room for them to become butterflies, so they just build up. And so this horde of caterpillars continues to chew away and decimate our beautiful garden while this flapping mass of butterflies blots out the sun. Wow, Ryan, do you need to talk about something? Eh, no, I'm over it. But as you can see, this can cause problems. Opioids make us sleepy and stop breathing. Acid keeps building up in our blood, and it gets turned into carbon dioxide, but the opioids have blocked our respiratory center, so we don't breathe any of it off. So acid just keeps building up, and our pH keeps creeping down, down, down as hydrogen creeps up, up, up. And as the blood becomes more acidic, it damages every single cellular function, from energy production to packaging proteins. And this leads to end organ failure. The organs can't do their job, your heart stops beating, even though it wasn't delivering oxygenated blood in the first place. And you slowly turn back into a collection of various chemicals as opposed to a functioning, communicating biologic system. Some have said that there's many different ways to die, but in the end, it's all too much hydrogen. Now, not everyone who takes an opioid is going to stop breathing and wind up with those effects. The risk of respiratory arrest after an opioid exposure is much higher in people who are opioid naive, like a kid that's never had an opioid and found someone's tablet and put it in their mouth, or somebody starting opioids for the first time and getting too high of a dose. 
In fact, like all poisons, it all comes down to dose. A really common time to overdose is after people who are chronic users go through a period of abstinence, like detox or jail. They were probably on a very high dose of opioids while they were physiologically dependent and had down-regulated receptors. Then that dose was okay for their biologic system. But then they go through abstinence, they withdraw, the receptors go back to normal, and then they go back to taking the exact same dose. Well, now that's way too much for them, and they can have an overdose. Or people who are used to using a certain amount of heroin, but now the heroin is contaminated with super potent fentanyl, and it amplifies the dose effectively by 10, and they experience a respiratory arrest. Or other things like taking drugs that also depress your respiratory rate, such as alcohol or benzodiazepines, along with the opioid. Okay, so that was sort of the chemical basis for how opioids can cause death. Fun facts to know, and it's important to understand the underlying pathology, but doesn't really affect that much of the bedside management. Is there any way that I can tell, just from looking at someone, if they might be on opioids? Like, say, a kid that got into a tablet of Suboxone. This is what we'd call a toxidrome. Toxidrome, the physical signs manifested by the autonomic nervous system effects caused from exogenous substance exposure. Or... The signs and symptoms that normally show up when you're affected by one of these drugs. This could be something like stimulants causing a very fast heart rate and sweating, as opposed to an overdose on Benadryl, which would cause a very fast heart rate, but you would be dry as a bone. Or having very wide dilated pupils from hallucinogenic tryptamines like LSD, but very teeny tiny little pupils from opioids. Some make you sweaty, some make you dry, some make you seize, some make you sleep, some make you poop, some make you not poop. The opioid toxidrome for... An overdose is sleepy, not breathing, little peoples. And it's sort of an extension of their normal effects. Remember, opioids blunt pain signaling, and they can make you unconscious and prevent any signaling from reaching your brain. Somebody who's overdosed on opioids might be totally unresponsive to rubbing on their sternum or pinching their nail beds. Not everyone is totally unconscious. Some patients might be slow to respond to you or intermittently falling asleep while they're talking to you. And of course, opioids turn off the respiratory center in the brain, so they slow down the breathing rate. They'll be hypoventilating, and some of them might not be breathing at all. Usually, when they're not breathing, this is when we reach for the naloxone to try to increase the respiratory rate. And they have this really funky effect where they make your pupils tiny. This is called meiosis, and it's because of an effect they have on the nerve that keeps your pupils open. It makes the nerve too sleepy, and it stops working. Then you get teeny tiny little pupils. Now, opioids have a ton of other effects from long-term use, but this is what I'm worried about when I'm looking for someone who's acutely intoxicated. Honestly, once you've seen this toxidrome a few times, it becomes pretty easy to spot. Okay, we know what Suboxone is, we know that kids are getting into it, and we know how opioids can kill, we know that they are killing, and we know how to spot if somebody's on them. I think we can finally dive into the case that brought up this whole episode. I got paged by one of our spies, or specialists in poison information, about a kid who maybe got into Suboxone, but also maybe didn't. We're going to walk through the management, our thought process, and what we ended up doing in order to make sure that this kid would have a good outcome. Without further ado, Toxo, activate poison rounds. Poison rounds. Why even have a podcast if you can't drop an air horn whenever you want? You receive a page regarding a four-year-old, 14-kilogram, human male who has been found playing with a 1 milligram suboxone sublingual strip. He was found about 30 minutes ago. The strip is now very moist. And the parents do not know if it is from the child putting it in their mouth or moisture from his hand. So I have this kid who maybe had this super potent opioid suboxone in his mouth. Or maybe he didn't. I don't know. Well, either way, it's just a lick or a taste of a medicine, right? What could the harm be? Except... This is the exact same scenario as the case from the beginning of the show, which is a published pediatric case report about a child who was found with a tablet of Suboxone in their mouth, had it quickly taken out, but still tragically passed away. But at least if he did take it, he should develop symptoms pretty quick and we'll know, right? Except in that exact case report, he didn't develop any symptoms and even got put to sleep. They didn't check on him until eight hours later, so we don't know exactly when symptoms started, but they clearly weren't immediate. And this isn't the only example of delayed symptom onset with Suboxone. A group of researchers at Harvard looked at every single pediatric Suboxone exposure that showed up to their emergency department. They found that the average time from exposure to respiratory depression was about four and a half hours. That's pretty unusual. 
Most immediate release drugs take about two hours to begin exerting their effect. That's about how long it takes to get through the stomach into the small intestine and get absorbed. Maybe you won't have your peak effect by then, but you should start to see some symptoms. So maybe they were getting sleepy beforehand and didn't get respiratory depression until later, but still a bit odd. So something seems to be going on that might cause delayed toxicity with Suboxone. All right, here's the confusing kicker. If you remember back to that mini episode, if you swallow a drug, you go through first-pass metabolism and get chewed up by the liver. For a drug like naloxone, the liver chews up 97% of the drug before it gets into circulation. But if you take the drug by any other route, really, you don't go through first-pass and you get more of the drug. This is actually something that we take advantage of. There's actually a sublingual version of Suboxone that is supposed to be absorbed better. Now, in adults, the amount of naloxone that gets absorbed that way isn't enough to cause opioid withdrawal. But those studies have never been done in kids, so I really don't know how much naloxone a kid is absorbing when they just lick the tablet or the film. And let's say they do get a good chunk of naloxone with their dose. Well, the amount of time naloxone spends in the body is a lot shorter than the amount of time that buprenorphine does. Naloxone's half-life is about 2 hours compared to 37 hours for buprenorphine. So when the drugs are together, buprenorphine won't have its effect, but after a few hours when the naloxone gets metabolized away, I have this super potent opioid floating around. Whether or not naloxone plays a role in the delayed toxicity, I don't know. It's just a theory. It could also be the active metabolite, which is a little bit stronger, that causes more toxicity. But there is at least some signal in the literature that symptoms might not develop immediately, or they could be delayed in their toxicity. Combine that with the unique pharmacokinetics of sublingual absorption and the co-formulation of this drug, and whether or not I even know if the kid took it, and I've got, at best, a very hairy situation. I mean, either have a kid who definitely did not take Suboxone and just has the strip in their hand, or I have a kid who actually did get only a lick of this, and if it was a lick, they actually absorb more of the drug than if they had swallowed, say, the same dose because they bypass first-pass metabolism. And maybe they have this super potent opioid floating around in their blood, which, for some reason, might have delayed toxicity. Maybe there's this opioid blocker also floating around in their blood, or maybe it's getting metabolized into the more potent metabolite. Then they stay asymptomatic just long enough for me to put my guard down and then them to become unconscious a few hours later. So the whole scenario brings up some knee-jerk reaction questions that I want to figure out before I can figure out what to do with this kid. My first questions are, is he displaying any symptoms? This would make this a no-brainer. If he's symptomatic, send him to the ER. I mean, this is a drug that has caused pediatric fatalities, and we have demonstrated symptoms. Well, you might as well just see which direction those symptoms are going to go. No need to mess around with the child's life. If he's not symptomatic, how long ago was the exposure, and is it possible at all he got into any more of the drug than just this single moist sublingual film that we found? Fortunately, the parents knew exactly how much of the drug was around, and this was the only one they found, so I don't have to worry about him possibly getting into more of this lethal drug. Because he has no symptoms, but it's so recent from the time that they found him, I can't rule out that he wasn't exposed to the drug. Okay, so at least I know he didn't swallow more. I mean, if I could confirm the exposure and I had anything more to work with than just a moist, pretty much fully intact strip, which at least tells me that not a lot of it dissolved either, it would be a no-brainer. You know, just go to the ER. But okay, since I'm thinking maybe they could stay home, I got to make sure it's okay for them to be monitored at home. So some things I think about when considering keeping someone at home are what are the home conditions like? For a kid, you know, is the caregiver able to actually do an assessment for the child to develop symptoms? Are they going to actually be under their watchful eye? If for some reason they're not able to be around to watch the child, or if it seems like the home scenario is not safe enough for them to be able to be monitored, well, then that's also a no-brainer. Get to the ER so we can let professionals do it. And if I do send him into the ER, is there anything different that they would do for him there that I could have mom and dad do at home? Well, in this case, yes. First, mom and dad didn't have naloxone. So I will reiterate, if you have kids and opioids at home, you also need to have naloxone. So if he went to the ER, they could give him naloxone and they could put in a breathing tube or give oxygen if he became symptomatic. But remember, I'm not even dealing with a confirmed exposure. It's a potential exposure. And is that warrant an ER visit? We basically got a phone call because they found a wet suboxone strip and a kid nearby it. We have no idea why it's wet. It could have been moisture from someone's hands. It could have just been that it was already wet and looked like that. 
or potentially this very deadly strip did get into the child's mouth. So is there any way that I can confirm this? Well, I guess I could send them into the ER to get tested for this drug, but unfortunately, the tests that we do for drugs in the ER are not very sensitive, meaning in those people who are on the drugs, we rarely detect them in the urine. And they're also not that specific, meaning I could not be on the drug and get a false positive. Those urine drug screens that we do in emergency departments are usually what we call ELISAs, or enzyme-linked immune assays. Basically, they take an antibody that looks for a structure that is commonly found in multiple drugs within a class. I mean, how do you just pee in a cup and it says, oh, you tested positive for opioids? There's a hundred different opioids. So usually they'll look for a structure that's common to all opioids, such as a morphinan ring. But not all opioids have that ring, like buprenorphine. Remember, buprenorphine is a partial agonist. So it doesn't look enough like a normal opioid to trigger your standard opioid urine drug screen. You have to get a special immune assay that's designed just for buprenorphine, which exists, but not a lot of ERs have them. And even if they did, it's probably too close from the time of ingestion for it to ding positive in the patient's urine. You have to ingest the drug, let it circulate, and actually reach the kidneys and be excreted in the urine before it can be picked up on the drug test. I guess, in theory, I could run it on the child's saliva and see if it picks up any buprenorphine, but it's definitely not validated in that medium, so I don't know how often there would be false negatives, and it wouldn't be helpful to me if it's negative. Or positive, because it could also be a false positive. For all these reasons, this is why urine drug screens are not very helpful in the care of a toxic exposure. There are a ton of different false positives and false negatives, and it rarely changes our acute care. I guess in this scenario, if I could at least confirm there was buprenorphine in their system, it could give me a plan to move forward with in terms of observation and monitoring, but most ERs aren't going to be able to figure that out for me at a moment's notice. Now, there are more specific tests I can do where we can actually pull the blood out of them and run it on something like a gas chromatography mass spectrometry, or GCMS, and that can confirm the presence in their blood, but that's a send-out lab, and it won't be back right away. It won't tell me if the kid is on it or not right now. Clearly, I can't figure out if he actually took it or not, so maybe I'll just assume that he did and come up with a plan from there. I wonder what happened to all those other kiddos that got into buprenorphine. You know, the four movie theaters full of kids every year? How many of them get sick? Well, a group from the Ohio Poison Center did help us answer this question. So they looked at the Poison Center records for 10,000 kids that were exposed to buprenorphine over 10 years. And of these kids, 60% experienced at least one opioid symptom. Remember that toxidrome, sleepy, unarousable, not breathing? About 20% of the kids, or one in five, needed naloxone. Another 200 had a severe life-threatening effect. 50 of them got intubated, and seven of them died. All in kiddos one to two years old. Pretty grim-looking data for any kid who's getting into Suboxone. But when we actually look at this data, 8% of the kids were home-managed, meaning that they didn't go into a hospital and presumably did okay. Usually we would follow these kids to a known outcome. But it's hard to make heads or tails of this. I mean, 20% needed naloxone, there was intubations and death, but 8% stayed at home? How do I figure out who was actually getting sick? Were they all getting the same dose? I think I need to get more granular. I mean, if I said the mortality in shootings was 20%, but you break it down by dose of bullets, those who get shot 10 times probably have a much higher mortality than those who get shot once with a small BB. So I need to figure out what doses kids are getting into and how sick it makes them. If you remember those Harvard doctors I talked about earlier, they studied every kid who showed up to their emergency department with a buprenorphine exposure. Well, I won't do the math for you, but those kids got into somewhere between 5 and 50 times the maximum dose that the kid in my scenario could have gotten into. Now, in this cohort of kids that had a way higher dose than what my kid got into, about 80% of them had some respiratory depression. But that also means that 20% didn't really have any of those symptoms, even though they took a way higher dose than my kid got into. Then I have this study from these ICU doctors in Massachusetts, and they looked at every kid who got admitted to their ICU for buprenorphine ingestion. So this automatically selects for sicker kids because they wound up in the ICU. The doses that these kids got would have been the same that my kid could have gotten into if he had let the whole sublingual film dissolve in his mouth, which I know he didn't. There wasn't anything missing. It was just moist. So I'm actually going to count that as a win. It seems like he got much less than these kids in the ICU. I think we're really lucking out that the strength of this sublingual film was very low at only one milligram. 
Now, here's an interesting note from this study. Every one of these kids that wound up in the ICU had orange pill residue in their mouth, suggesting that they let the tablet or film or whatever it was sit and dissolve in their mouth. This is pretty counterintuitive. So these are the sicker kids, right? But they just had the medicine sitting in their mouth. A lot of people would think that means they're getting less of the drug, but in this case, they're actually absorbing more sublingually than they would if they had ingested the dose orally. So keep that in mind, moms and dads. Sometimes drugs can throw you through a loop, and just because it's in their mouth doesn't mean they didn't absorb any. Then we have one final study from Hayes and colleagues at the Maryland Poison Center. They looked at radars and poison center data. So this isn't like bedside with the kids. This is data reported to a database. So it's a little bit less granular. I don't know how accurate the doses are. But then again, I don't really know how accurate the doses are when the kid shows up to the ER and you're asking a nervous parent how much of a lethal drug they got into. And what they found was that nearly 25% of the 86 kids in their study were managed at home. The kids who got into real trouble got more than 2 milligrams. And they even came out with a recommendation that if the child only got a lick or a taste and they were older than 2 years old, it was probably okay to home manage. Now, this recommendation was challenged a few years later in a paper by Ed Boyer about methadone and buprenorphine exposure, quoting that it was based off too much subjective data. But they made a recommendation that if you were under the age of three years old and you were potentially exposed, you should go in for a 24-hour admission. Thank goodness that my kiddo is four years old, so he must be fine. Brian, that's not really how it works. You have to assess each individual patient. Obviously, you're right, Toxo. Nothing happens between age three years and 364 days and the age four years that makes them less susceptible to toxicity. You can't follow blanket guideline recommendations and say, oh, they're four, they don't need to go to the ER. You have to assess the components of each individual exposure, which is what we've been doing the whole episode. So what do I do here? I have some conflicting recommendations, even from others who manage poisoning, and I have my own experience in which I've had some buprenorphine exposures that I've seen get treated in the emergency department, but now I have a better understanding. After reading about nearly 200 kids in those studies who were exposed to buprenorphine, as to whether this dose, which would be just a lick or a taste of a one milligram strip, is enough to cause serious toxicity, or if this kid will fall into that category of the 8 to 25% that were okay when they were managed at home. So if I think about the dose makes the poison, I could kind of come up with a spectrum. On one side, I have kids who are letting high-strength 8 milligram suboxone strips dissolve in their mouth, and that would be, say, high dose. And on the other side... I find, well, just a moist suboxone strip that I don't even know if anyone put in their mouth. <laughs> I guess that would be the low dose. Even if the kid did put it in their mouth, the full strip was intact, so I would call it just a lick or a taste, which would give me a dose of about 50 times less than most of the doses reported in these studies of kids who showed up to healthcare facilities. So I'm thinking it's probably okay for this instance to be watched at home. But that doesn't mean I'll let my guard down. We don't want to take any risk from a kiddo, and all the information I'm getting about this exposure is on the phone, so I can't confirm half of it anyways. A risk might still exist for them to get symptomatic. We have to come up with an airtight plan to monitor this kid at home. Not to mention, all the delayed toxicity I've been reading about, it's going to be a prolonged observation. So we talked to the parents. We asked them if they had any naloxone at home, which they didn't, and we recommended they go out and get some. We made sure mom and dad would keep him under watchful eye the entire night and told him what to look out for, that opioid toxidrome. Narrow pupils, too sleepy, not responsive, floppy baby syndrome, or ataxia, which could develop in kids, meaning they're wobbly on their feet. And we did a little planning figured out where the nearest emergency department was, and made sure they had their bags packed so that they could run over there or call 911 to bring them there if the child did develop symptoms. And finally, we had our awesome specialist in poison information do some callbacks every few hours just to check in on the patient, make sure he's being assessed okay, and that nothing's going wrong. So both the parents and the spy were up all night monitoring the patient for a prolonged observation because of the delayed toxicities that have been reported. Okay, Ryan, so did they get any symptoms? Oh, uh, no, the kid ended up doing just fine. But remember, this wasn't even a confirmed exposure. It's totally possible they didn't get into it at all, which is one of the reasons we felt more comfortable leaving them at home. We plan for the worst, but hope for the best. Maybe that's a little anticlimactic, but I think it's good that a kid did not get sick. And I don't want anyone to take this as permission to leave their kids at home after a potential exposure. We had to do a ton of background work 
figure out the logistics of how we could get them to an emergency department if anything were to go wrong, and have healthcare professionals experienced in poison triage do frequent monitoring of this patient. So if you ever have an exposure like this, you absolutely must contact your poison center and be ready to go into the ER. Okay, so that was our deep dive into what happens when we get a home call about a potential serious poisoning. There's tons of different poisons you can be exposed to. This is just one example, and honestly, it can get even more complicated than this. Here's a rapid-fire review of some of the things we learned today. There are a lot of drugs that kids can get into that will cause problems, but ones that really get my heart rate up are ones that are on the one-pill-can-kill list. These are drugs that lower our blood pressure, stop us from breathing, or knock out our metabolic pathways. Drugs commonly found on this list include opioids and certain hypnotics that can knock out our respiratory rate, blood pressure medicines like propranolol, diltiazem, or verapamil, and certain anti-diabetic medicines like sulfonylureas. And this isn't an exhaustive list. There's some other things too, like antiarrhythmic medicines, uh, tricyclic antidepressants, as well as a variety of non-drug agents kids can get into, like oil of wintergreen. When triaging one of these exposures, there are a lot of different considerations. Back when I was a specialist in poison information, working the phones and triaging these in real time, I came up with a little mnemonic to help me gather the information I needed from each exposure. Scholar, S-C-H-O-L-A-R. S is for symptoms. The symptoms a kid has can totally influence whether they need to go into the ER or stay at home, and it depends on both the symptoms and the toxin. An opioid-exposed kid who's drowsy, not very responsive, definitely going to the ER. A kid who ate a bunch of zinc oxide diaper paste and has one self-limited episode of vomiting, not as concerning for life-threatening toxicity. Probably okay to manage at home. C is for characteristics of exposure and causative agent. How did the exposure occur? Did mom see them put a tablet in their mouth and quickly sweep it out? Or is it possible that they ate 10 tablets while no one was watching? And what exactly is the causative agent? If you have somebody read the name of the medicine right off the bottle, you'll be surprised how many times it's not what they actually said that the child took. H is for history. What's their past medical history? Is this a medicine that they already take? Or do they have another condition that might mimic symptoms of this exposure? And the H also stands for how long ago did they take the drug? Because that will predict O, onset of symptoms. L is for labs, which is my way of thinking, is there any way I could figure out they took this drug? Let's do a focused assessment on the areas where the toxicities might manifest. If it's an irritant, having the parents look in the mouth to look for oral irritation. If it's a sedative, having them assess for alertness, responsiveness, and etc. And then A and R are for aggravating and remitting factors. AKA, what have they done to help treat the condition so far? Did they try to make the kid throw up, which we almost never recommend? Did they give milk? Did they wash them off of any exposure, etc.? So, for anyone out there who deals with poisoning exposures and might find that useful, once again, that was Scholar. S-C-H-O-L-A-R. Symptom, characteristics and causative agent, history of past medical and history of exposure, onset of symptoms, labs, aka do a focused assessment for toxicity of this exposure, and aggravating or remitting factors, what has already been done. Information regarding how the exposure occurred, the potency of the toxin, the potential life-threatening toxicities, and the environment where they can be monitored at home all play in to whether or not they're able to stay at home or they need to go into a hospital. And each drug has unique effects, unique onsets of action, differing doses that are toxic, and each exposure has its own unique characteristics to consider. If you are mom and dad at home, or even if you're a healthcare provider, and you are confronted with a kid that had a potential drug exposure, don't try to tackle these complex scenarios on your own. Get professionals involved. Call your local poison center at 1-800-222-1222. Okay, I think that wraps up the summary. And there's a lot of other things we could have talked about in this episode. We really only covered some triage and disposition decisions. We could have talked about more testing, actual treatment, uh, decontamination with activated charcoal, how long you have to watch someone after you give an antidote because the antidote can wear off. There's a whole slew of things. In the end, you're only going to listen for so long, and I don't want to hear myself talk that long. So thanks for listening as long as you did. There's definitely some things out there that are interesting to me. I'm really curious as to whether there is a delay in toxicity related to possible naloxone co-ingestion with these suboxone strips. It would be a really easy natural study for someone to compare buprenorphine alone compared to suboxone exposures and look at time to respiratory depression. 
If anybody out there has the bandwidth, please do it. But that'll wrap things up for today's show. I hope you are actively buying naloxone right now, and I hope you learned something about opioids and all the weird things that toxicologists think about when they get a call about poisonings. Don't forget to follow the show on Twitter at LabPoison and myself at EMPoisonFarmD. You can check out our Instagram at Tox underscore Talk and go to ThePoisonLab.com. Toxo made this super cool vasopressor resuscitation game that you can actually use vasopressors in a virtual cardiovascular system and see how they affect things. And it teaches all about shock and all these different things. I mean, if you're not a healthcare worker, you can go play around. It's still pretty fun. But if you're a healthcare worker and you want to learn about shock, it's a good time. Anyways, as per usual, we are going to introduce the next case. This is easily one of my absolute favorite toxicology subjects, and I really can't wait to do this episode. Like usual, feel free to email in your guess as to what you think it could be. Send them to talkstalk one at gmail.com. I think we're going to read through some of them at the beginning of the show, but actually, we might do it a little bit different for episode four. Anyways, without further ado, Toxo, roll the case. Still struggling to taper. At my peak, I was taking 400 pills a day. I had a cardiac arrest and ended up in the hospital on a ventilator and in a coma for two days. I discharged six days later with countless tests showing that my heart was perfectly normal. Thing is, I had so much of this drug in my system that I didn't even feel the withdrawals until day five, and that's when I realized that it was this drug that caused the cardiac arrest. After I left, I educated myself heavily and never allowed myself to go over 225 pills a day, but that dose was still too much. I vowed to get off this stuff, and I started a taper. I've been stuck at about 96 pills for the last three days, and any time I try dropping the dose, the withdrawals get really bad. Wow. This is one user's experience with this substance. One that made them go into cardiac arrest, but even after discharging from the hospital, they still felt compelled to take hundreds of tablets a day. I really hope this person found the help that they need. What kind of a substance could have such a grip on a person? How does it cause this toxic effect? Where do they even get 400 tablets a day? As it turns out, it might be something readily available to every one of us. If you want to know more, well, tune in for the next episode. Thanks for listening today. Hey, Toxo, can you play us out? The information on this show is for educational purposes only and should not be interpreted as medical advice or treatment recommendations. Please contact your doctor for any health questions or call your local poison center at 1-800-222-1222 for poison-related questions. This show is poorly written and shoddily produced by Ryan Feldman. Subscribe for future episodes and don't forget to share with your nerdy friends. See you next time. Goodbye.